Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. The Bible has always been under attack by unbelievers down through the ages. In fact, the Word of God and the authority of Christ Himself was openly questioned by skeptics long ago. The human heart hasn't changed, and there still is a resistance to accepting what God has to say about people and about His Son. In one way, the animosity against the Bible's message has increased with Internet technology, as individuals seem determined to champion their atheistic cause through websites, chat rooms, and blogs. But do any of their arguments hold water? In today's broadcast, evangelist and teacher Dr. Sandy Higgins takes a look at the authority of the Bible. How is it that we can depend on the Bible's message for us today? Where does this authority come from? And on what basis does the Bible claim our attention and allegiance? We trust that Dr. Higgins' insights will be helpful in settling the Bible as a foundation for your life. 2 Timothy and chapter 3, and reading together at verse number 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, truly furnished unto all good works. I'm sure that God will add his blessing to the reading of his word, along with other scriptures which we will read and allude to further along in the meeting. Let me just posit a few questions that may sound strange upon older ears, but maybe younger ones, not quite so unusual. Number one is, why should I believe Why should I bow and obey the Word of God? Why should I obey it? Can I really depend on this book and it being accurate? And is this book really adequate for my life? I mean, here's a book. I mean, let's face it. It was written, some of it, as long as 3,500 years ago. The most recent was written 2,000 years ago. How could it possibly guide me at work, at college, in my family life? How can a book that was written at a different time in a different culture by people who had no cell phones, didn't know what an MP3 player was, never heard of the internet, and those people are telling me how to live today? I mean, how can that be? And finally, how do I as a young Christian go about actually reading the Bible? Now, we have read in Second Timothy chapter 3, God's answer to those questions. First of all, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So the first thing we want to look at, and that's the subject for tonight, is the authority of this book. The authority of this book. That this book carries with it all the authority of God 
for you and for me today. So the authority of this book. You remember that one day men faced the Lord Jesus Christ. And their question to him was, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? And who gave you this authority? So that men were interested in the authority that stood behind the Lord Jesus. Now notice the question really had a, a twofold uh, approach. Number one, by what authority are you doing this? And if you have authority, who gave you this authority? So we recognize then that authority can either be inherent or it can be given, vested in someone. And if you think of it, there are, for the most part, the giving of authority to others in our society. But now, just think with me of the Bible for a moment and the Word of God. Maybe I should mention this. You recognize, maybe you haven't thought of it, but it's obvious once you think of it. There's a big difference between having authority and having power. Now, if you want to just um, have a concrete real-life example, if you're driving through the streets of your town and the uh, policeman puts up his hand and tells you to stop for some reason, he has the authority. But does he really have enough power to stop your car if you decide to put the pedal to the metal and, you know, and just gun it? He doesn't have the power. He's got the authority. So authority is one thing. Power is something else. While at times power does give authority if you're a tyrant or you're a despot, for the most part we're looking at authority. And of course when you think of God, you also think of power, but we're looking mainly at God's authority. His right, His right to tell you how you ought to live. His right to tell you as a young believer, as a middle-aged person, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a businessman, as an employee, His absolute right to tell you how you ought to live and how your life should be managed and how your family should be controlled. Now, as I said, for believers in my generation, that these may sound like very strange things. You know, come on, get off it. You know, we all know the Bible is its own authority. There's no, no explanation of God's authority. God is authoritative because He's God. And that's fine, and that's true, and that's what you and I have, have accepted. Young people are facing an entirely different world an entirely different mindset that questions authority, that undermines authority, that in the face of authority. And so we need to again reiterate and to seek to establish the authority of the Word of God and God's right then to wield this authority in your life and in mine. Now, in natural life, when you think of a man who's called an authority in a subject, just ask yourself, what made him an authority? It can be one of several things, can it? It could be the idea, here's a man that has tremendous experience in what he's dealing with. You want an authority as far as someone fixing your car. You want someone who's got a lot of experience. He's seen it all. He's dealt with varying problems. He's an expert. He's got authority for what he says. When he speaks about what's wrong with that car, he knows what he's talking about. So he's got authority in terms of what he says because of his experience. Then there are others that have authority because of their wisdom. Not just that they've got experience doing things, but they've studied something. And so there are individuals who, when they speak about different subjects, since they have delved into it and they have applied themselves and they know every nuance of it, out of their wisdom they speak. And men, listen, men recognize their authorities in different fields of science or different fields of literature, different fields of medicine. And so they are authoritative because of their wisdom, that their knowledge. Then there are individuals who are authoritative because of their skill at something. 
and individuals who are authoritative because they have tremendous foresight. You know, everybody wants someone today who can speak authoritatively about the stock market. Men who can uh, foresee trends and can be able to tell you where things are going. They speak with some authority. But then as well, there is the authority that comes from ownership, isn't there? Ownership. Owning something, having full rights to it, gives you authority over that. What has given God authority? Think of God and and his authority in the garden. I don't know how you would um, view the tree that God gave in the midst of the garden, to which he said, every other tree you can eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you won't eat. You may say, well, that was kind of strange that God would do that. Maybe one reason was to remind Adam and Eve, the garden is mine. The garden belongs to me. I have put you in here to tend it, to keep it, but that tree is a reminder of the rights of ownership. belongs to me. The garden is mine. You're responsible. What gave God that authority? He made it. He fashioned it. He provided everything for them. So he had absolute rights to ownership because of what he had done and because of his creatorial act. Why then is God authoritative? We could cut to the chase and just say, if you just get to the first four words of your Bible, that ends every discussion. In the beginning, the first three words, in the beginning God. If in the beginning God was, then he transcends time, he transcends cultures, he transcends knowledge, because all knowledge derives from him. All wisdom comes from him. He transcends everything. He is He is the ultimate end then, isn't he? If in the beginning God. But... Think just for a moment of what we have already spoken about. Think of one who is authoritative because of his wisdom. That's God. Think of one who is authoritative because of his foresight. That's God. Three times over in Isaiah, three times over in Revelation, I am the first, I am the last. One who knows the end of a thing before even the beginning has occurred. He is above time. He is above events. He is above cultures and changes. He is authoritative because of his wisdom, because of his foresight, because of his experience. Younger people here will sit in classes at college, maybe even high school now, but certainly in college. There will be a discussion about ethics, what's right and what's wrong. One system that is frequently brought before you as a valid system or at least a workable system for deciding what is right and what is wrong is what is for the greatest good of the greatest number of people for the greatest length of time. Now just think of that. What is for the greatest good of the greatest number of people for the greatest length of time? I mean, there's obviously uh, a tremendous problem with that, isn't there? All you got to do is look at some of the government programs that have occurred during your lifetime and mine that were supposed to help people, and you see how hard it is to know, number one, what's for the greatest good. And number two, to know what is for the greatest number of people. And perhaps ultimately the greatest problem is we are all inside the box. And to be able to get outside the box and see what's going to happen 200 years from now because of what I have done, it's impossible. But you see, there is a God who is outside of all of that. That's why he can tell us what is right and what is wrong. He is outside of that box in which each of us is placed and which every culture is placed. So he is the God of wisdom. He is the God of experience. He is the God of foresight. He is the God of knowledge. He is all of that and much, much more. But God is authoritative as well. Ultimately, 
because he owns. He owns every believer. I have redeemed thee, thou art mine. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, ye are not your own, ye are bought. Ye are bought. So that right of ownership belongs to God and as a result, then that establishes God's authority in your life and in my life. He made us. There's a sense in which the book you hold in your hand is God's text support to fix you and to fix me. He knows exactly what is wrong. He knows where we've gone wrong. He knows how to fix it. He knows everything about you and about me. He is the owner. He is the maker. He is the one who is able then to correct all of the glitches and he knows how we're made. He knows how to remake us. He knows how to fix us. He knows how to adjust us. It's all in this book. That's why this book that we hold in our hands is authoritative. Because of who God is and because of the right he has of ownership. There's something in us, naturally speaking, that doesn't like to be told, well, you have to do what you're told. You know, unless your children were somehow different than mine, you know, that's lesson number one which has to be taught, that, you know, you do what you're told. I have the authority to tell you to do that. And I have your best interest at heart, expect you to do it. We rebel against that. But I think before we go any further, we have to realize that this book is authoritative. This book carries with it the stamp of God, carries with it the authority of God, and he has absolute rights because of redemption. He has absolute rights because of creation to tell us what then is the way in which we ought to go and what then should characterize our lives. But if God is authoritative, has he spoken in his word? I'm going to ask you to turn now to a few other scriptures as we look at that subject. First Corinthians in chapter 2, and we'll read at verse number 11. What man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual and so on. Turn as well to Second Peter and chapter 1 and verse number 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart, knowing this, first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And I want to talk to you about the mandate for revelation. What do I mean by that? We read together that no man knows the spirit of a man save the spirit of that man himself. Likewise, he says, no one would know the mind of God other than the spirit of God. What he's saying is simply this, that one man can never know what's in another man's heart. Only you know what you're thinking. He says, well now, think of the difficulty of that. How would we ever know what is in the heart and mind of God? He said, just as no man knows another man's thinking other than the spirit of that man, likewise, he says, we would never know what is in the heart of God other than the spirit of God revealing it. So, I mean, it's obvious 
that there is a mandate, if we are going to know God, if we are going to know what is in God's mind and heart and longings for us, it has to be God that does the revealing. There is no way. Can man by searching find out God? Job said no. We would never know. And if you need living proof of that, you just go to places where the word of God has never penetrated. Just go to cultures and climes and religions where the truth of God has never penetrated. Where men have been left just to what is called natural revelation, meaning creation all around them. And you find animistic cultures where they they ascribe uh, different deities controlling different things and uh, and the earth and sky and everything becomes a god to them. And they are so dark and it is so foreign. Why? Because when men delve within to try to decide what that god must be like, then the result is chaos. Some of you have had to study the Greek and Roman deities and mythology and so on, and you know what it was like, that what they did was merely create gods in their own image. And so there was a God who was marked by anger and a God who was marked by lust and a God who was marked by aggressiveness and a God who was... And they would have a God that would express every positive and negative quality of human beings because they were simply creating gods in their own image. Just reproducing what was in here only in a magnified way in their gods. And it just testifies to this, that as far as men deciding what God is like, apart from this book, apart from God revealing to us what is in his heart, it is absolutely hopeless. So there is the um, the darkness of our own souls that we have to cope with. Because of sin, every thought we have, every concept we have as men and women, because of sin, is distorted. Our noblest thought of what God would be like, apart from this book, totally distorted by our own sin, our own warped mind. It's C.S. Lewis who speaks of us being bent. I think that's a great expression, that we're just bent. Nothing is straight. Nothing is as it ought to be. All of our thinking, all of our logic, all of our understanding, everything bent because of sin. So the darkness that is within us, And then there is the distance, isn't there, between us and God. Uh, The tremendous distance. How could we ever begin to fathom what a God of such infinite, transcendent glory at such a distance would be like? We would have no concept. So there's darkness within, there's distance around. But tragically, probably the worst is the total disinterest we have as, as human beings in really discovering what that God is like. So God has revealed it unto us in His Word, through the Word of God, for us. The mandate then for, for revelation. The mandate that God would tell us what he is like. The mandate for it being inspired. Not just men who were good and even men that knew something of God and began to record it, but that God would control. That God would control exactly what they would say and what they would reveal of him to us. But let me speak to you as well about the meaning of inspiration. We use that expression those who are raised hearing the Word of God all the time. That's a common expression that's used. And sometimes I wonder, do we know what we are speaking of when we speak of the Word of God being inspired? It's not the same as uh, you know a poet who gets inspired to, uh, to write a poem or a person who's inspired to compose a hymn or, or a man who is inspired to uh, attempt some great feat. That's um, one 
way in which the word inspiration is used. But when we speak of inspiration, literally, it's more the idea of something that is breathed out. The word really that is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It really would be better translated, all scripture is breathed out. It is breathed out by God to us. That's the idea of the word itself. It's God breathing out, God expressing himself. And how exactly was that done? And what is the meaning of inspiration? Let me separate three things. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. There are things that were revealed that were never written down. For example, Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven and I heard things. I often wonder why he didn't say, I saw things. Most of us would think what we would see would be the greatest thing, but he said, I heard things. I can't write them. So he had revelations that he never recorded. So they were never inspired, not inspired. Then you have a man like Luke. Luke, as he has begun to pen his gospel, he says, I have accurately or diligently sought out information about the Lord Jesus. So that Luke, as a wise historian, went, he went to Mary. Mary, I've got some questions for you. He would interview Mary. He would interview others who knew the Lord Jesus. And he would interview people who were with him because Luke wasn't there. He began to write. Where's your revelation? No revelation. He was gathering information like a wise reporter, a wise historian, and he began to write. So there was writing without revelation. So what then is inspiration? Inspiration is God controlling what men put to paper. The vast majority came as a result of revelation and men recorded it. So inspiration is actually the actual writing. So that if we had been there when Luke finished, Luke chapter 24, and they were daily in the temple praising and blessing God, and he put his period at the end of the sentence, before the ink was dry on the period, you would be able to say every word that Luke has recorded is inspired. Absolutely perfect. Not a flaw. Not a not even so much as a, a syllable that wasn't from the heart and mind of God breathed out and Luke recorded it all. So inspiration was not merely or the idea that God revealed something to men and then they kind of wrote it down as best they could or as best they could remember. It was God actually controlling what men recorded and what men wrote that was then the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God so that we come to the word of God then and God has given revelation. No question. Things we would never know apart, as we've already said, from God revealing them unto men. The mind of Christ. God has instructed us relative to all of these tremendous truths. So, revelation, and there is the recording, and then there is the reading of the word of God. So, again, three things. There is impartation. God imparts truth. The inspiration is when men write it. And the illumination, hopefully, is when you and I read it. The Spirit gives us illumination. He enlightens us as to what the meaning of that particular passage is. So that is how, in a very simple way, the God of such infinite distance has made known to you and to me all his heart. Yes, God has revealed his mind to us in his word. 
He has used human instrumentality in expressing his will and his ways to us. He illuminates the reader who desires to be led by the Spirit of God and understanding the true meaning of what he intends for us to know. And all of this is based on the authority inherent within himself by virtue of his wisdom and power, as well as his rightful ownership of us as the mighty Creator. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by believers in Christ who are meeting at various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday, as well as other meetings such as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and a very warm welcome awaits you. If you've been challenged by today's message, and would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, take a look at our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gathering center nearest you. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening, and we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that Christ alone is the anchor for the soul.